0: Welcome to the Cycling and Alignment podcast, an examination of cycling as a practice and dialogue about the integration of sport and right relationship to your life. Greetings, meat popsicles. You're here for another episode of Cycling in Alignment. I use that term not, not just randomly, but sometimes on a bike you do feel like a meat popsicle, don't you? Do you? Think about that. Well, today we're talking about how our meat popsicles engage the saddle. No, wait, that's a terrible analogy. Forget I said that. We're talking about thoughts. Thoughts on bike saddles, on bicycle seating devices. And specifically, I will unpack some ideas on saddles, some descriptions of how they're made and how they might do better to engage in human anatomy and how we might set them up a bit. I just wanna give you guys some tools so you can start to figure out what this thing is and what it's all about and how you might find a better one. That's the objective. I get specific and talk about different brands, nose angles, shapes and cutouts, and other gizmos. So my intent is that you find this to be useful information. And if you have questions as always, reach out. I thought I would take some time today to share some thoughts on bicycle saddles. That thing, that torture device. Well, hopefully not. But I do see a lot of clients who are struggling with the saddle, the world of the saddle. And here's the thing about bike seats. I usually ask people to rate their current saddle. One to ten. One is you are sitting on a Phillips head screwdriver. Ten is the ultimate lazy boy, but not in a squishy puffy sense, in a disappearing sense. That is the end goal is to have a saddle disappear where you don't really think about it for one hour. You don't think about it for three hours. You don't think about it for five hours. You don't get home. There aren't holes burning in your crotch. There's no chafing. There's no scarring. There are no saddle sores. There are no little pebble-sized Cysts growing in your nether regions, which is unfortunately quite common. I know several riders have had surgery to have these removed. So these are scenarios we want to avoid. When riders come in, frequently they'll say, My saddle's a five or a six, or maybe they'll say an eight or a nine. And then I look at the saddle they're sitting on and I tell them, we're gonna give you a new ten. We're gonna re-expand your scale. We're gonna dial it in. It's like you thought Bo Derek was a ten, we're gonna go Natalie Portman on that or whatever, depending on your own beauty is in the eye of the beholder. So you get my point. We're going to redefine the curve and we're going to find a new way for saddles to be comfortable and disappear under the body. And that's a new paradigm for a lot of people. As I've mentioned on other pods, we tend to lump all discomfort into one category. That is the discomfort, which makes you a better bike rider. You go out for your first 80 mile ride in January. And your legs hurt and your lungs hurt and your neck hurts and your back hurts and your shoulders hurt and your hands are cold and your feet are cold unless you live in Florida and your butt hurts and your genitals have fallen asleep and you have numbness or pain or saddle sores. And that's just part of the process of developing supple muscle and acclimating your butt to the saddle. We don't want a human pelvic floor to have to accommodate a saddle. We want to build a better saddle. That's the end goal. So in order to outline this discussion, we've got to define some terms and some parameters. We're going to talk about the anatomy of the human, the human undercarriage. And then we're going to talk about the shapes of saddles and how those two things go together. How do they fit together? How effectively do they fit together? What are the design concepts of different types of saddles? How do they support the weight of the torso? That's the issue. And then we'll kind of unpack the nuances of all those shapes and how they go together, and what may or may not work for you. The end goal is that when you sit on a saddle, you have some idea of what's going on, and then you can start to discern which saddle's working poorly for me, which saddle's working better for me, and what is it about that poorly working saddle that's really causing the issue? Is it the width? Is it the is it the transition from the overall width to the nose? What is it about that shape of that saddle that is causing issues? Is it the is it the overall width? Is it the padding? Is it the total amount of padding, the lack of padding or the placement of padding or the thickness and density of the foam? All these factors can impact how a saddle treats you. And I'm going to not address too many anatomical concerns in the sense of there are many aspects of a rider's functional anatomy that can impact how they relate to the saddle. I will briefly touch on those. If I go too far down that rabbit hole, we get the topic becomes too big. So we'll unpack that in future episodes. Saddles are basically triangular. We've got a nose and a tail, right? And within that triangle, we can do lots of things. Think about a very old school type of saddle. For those of you who just started riding or racing in the last few years, you may have to do some internet searchings to understand what the heck I'm talking about. These are models such as a Concorde, a Sella Italia Flight, or a Turbo. These saddles have some common characteristics. When viewed from the front, meaning if you point the nose at your face or at your nose, nose to nose and you look down the saddle, what you'll see is a curved shape to the nose. Meaning the top side of the nose portion and the center section of the saddle is very curved and even the the rearward section, the tail section of the saddle has a very curved look to it like a rainbow. It's convex. And when you understand the human anatomy and specifically the, what's going on between the relationship between the pelvic floor and the ischium, you'll understand why that is problematic. Now, but before I get to that, I want to unpack more about the shape. So when we rotate the saddle to the side, we look at it from a lateral view. From the side view, most saddles are predominantly flat, meaning if you took a ruler and you put it on top of the saddle, one end of the nose, one end of the tail, the saddle, the top of the saddle would parallel the line of that ruler there are some saddles that have some curve to them like a hammock and they curve down away from the ruler. The Concorde was one of the older examples of this. Really, it didn't quite curve down in a U shape. It curved. If you went from the nose to the tail, it was like a long, slow ramp. And then at the very end, it had a scoop that kind of cupped your butt at the end. And a lot of riders like this saddle shape for that reason. That scoop sort of felt like it gave you some support. It cradled the glutes at the backside of the saddle. And that was helpful. Now we're gonna fast forward to some modern saddles. Now modern saddles kind of do, they support the torso in we'll say the inverse way. So if we go back to our turbo and our flight model, look at it from the nose, we have that round shape that concave shape that, that's like a rainbow that pops up. And what you're doing is you're supporting the weight of the torso on the soft tissue, the perineum, or pushing into the pelvic floor. In order to do that, in order to understand the relationship of that pressure to support relationship, we've got to unpack what the human undercarriage looks like. So people, most people are familiar with the term sit bones sit bones or sits bones, depending on who you speak to. It's a colloquialism. And like all colloquialisms, it's a great 50,000 foot view. Let's discern. Let's have a discourse. So the sits bones are really what we're talking about is the ischium, which are the two halves of the pelvis or the underside of the two halves of the pelvis. And crudely speaking, these are like rocking chair feet. They're wide in the back and they get narrower as you move towards the front and they're curved. So they're like the rocking chair feet. When you put a rocking chair on a hardwood floor, it rocks back and forth. And it has one point of contact because that curved arc is meeting a flat surface. So that's the relationship of your ischium when they contact a flat saddle. In between those rocking chair feet is your pelvic floor or your perineum. Your perineum is a lump of soft tissue. We're talking about men and women here. And it's kind of in structure, it's sort of like a cucumber. So when you have a saddle, such as a flight, which is flat when viewed from the side and rounded when viewing from the front, and it's triangular as it gets to the back, if you hold that saddle in your hand and you put a cucumber on top, is that cucumber going to be stable on there? Or is it going to want to fall off to one side or the other? They're basically two round, long cylindrical shapes. And so that and so you can see that first of all, it's not a stable relationship. Secondly, as you push that cucumber down onto the saddle, you're going to mush it and we're going to get pressure pressure point upon pressure point, meaning the cucumber is going to get smashed into the long cylindrical length of that saddle. That's offset a little bit in a saddle like a Concorde, which is rounded at the nose, but then scoops up at the tail, but really not so much. Not effectively. It's a step forward it's a small step forward. It's one out of 12 steps we want to take. Okay. So now we're going to, we're going to think into the future and we're going to decide that we want to support the torso in the opposite way. Instead of pushing up into the soft tissue, applying pressure to the pelvic floor, into the perineum of the underside of a human we're gonna support the torso by the bones, by the bony ischium. So we're gonna build a saddle that traces the line of the ischium and we're gonna allow those bones to sit on it. Okay, now we're back to our rocking chair analogy. We have those ischium and they're gonna go on that hardwood floor. And if we build a flat saddle, then we're gonna have one point of contact. How are we going to support the weight of the torso on the ischium and not on the perineum? We're gonna build a saddle with a cutout. So we take away the material in the middle, and then we, and then what happens is the bones will lie or rest on those long. What am I going to call these? Pulling out my descriptive artistry here. We'll call these just the, the long sides of the saddle, I guess. That's boring. And the issue, are going to sit on those two rails. We'll call them railroad tracks. How's that? Now, railroad tracks are flat. So again, if we make that saddle dead flat and put a cut out in the middle and put the ischium on top, that will support the weight of the torso on those ischiums somewhere, but we're going to get one point of contact. And that means one point of pressure. That means localized pressure. Back to our sits bones. Many people come to me who have gone to a shop and had their ischial tuberosities or their sits bones width measured. And I'm here to tell you that's kind of a red herring and it's a bit of a useless metric. Again, it's two 50,000 foot view. Why? Here's why. When we look at the ischium towards the posterior side or towards the tail of the saddle, there are two little bumps on those ischium. They're not perfectly round sculpted rocking chair feet. They're human anatomy. They're made of bone. So they're a little lumpy and they're two little points in the back. Those little points are kind of like little corners that pop down out of those rocking chair arcs. Those are the ischial tuberosities. There are also two more in the front of the ischium. Those are called the ischiopubic rami. That's easy to remember ischiopubic rami because the pubic is closer to the pubic bone, which is the front side of the pelvis. Most people will be able to figure that out. The ischial tuberosities are towards the back side of the pelvis. So we have these four points. So we have these curved rocking chair feet with imagine four little nubbins, two in the front and two in the back, and they're like rocker blockers, meaning you can't go past that point. You can't rock further past the tuberosities and you can't rock further past the rami. Hopefully that makes sense. So as we set up the bike and we have our athlete sitting on the saddle, when the athlete sits up on the tops and they're torso angle is closer to, we'll say 45 or 50 degrees for most athletes, a little cl- more towards vertical, then they're going to naturally sit further back on those ischium and they're going to be closer to the ischial tuberosities. As they transition their position to the hoods, most people's torso angle will go down slightly. We'll say maybe 35 degrees, 30 degrees, 25, depending on the athlete, depending on where you're measuring, you get the co- you get the point. And then we're rolling forward on the ischium. As we rolled forward on the ischium, we roll away from the ischial tuberosities and more towards the center between, we'll say the rami and the ischial tuberosities, somewhere in the middle. Then as you get really low and either get down on the drops or maybe you keep your hands in the hoods, but you bend your elbows a lot and you drop your shoulder height. Now our torso angle goes far, much farther down. Maybe 10, 15 degrees, 20 degrees, maybe zero, depending again on which markers you're using to measure, it doesn't really matter. Call it a racing position with a more horizontal torso. That's the concept. Now we've rolled forward again on those ischium, more towards the ischiopubic rami. So since those ischium are angled, there's an angle between them, narrower in the front and wider in the back. What we're looking for is a saddle that approximates that same angle. So as you roll forward, it matches your pressure. And it still supports you. And as you roll back and sit more on the tops, it supports you better. Clear? So this is the basic map of how a cutout saddle with a curve would ideally support the torso. This doesn't work for all riders. So as a general statement, the only rule about saddles is there are no rules about saddles. Meaning one person's Phillips head screwdriver is another person's lazy boy. So when you ask your friend or your riding buddy what they ride on and why, that may be useful data, but it may be completely worthless because your undercarriage is probably not shaped like theirs. And back to my old saying, God is a novelty generator. So everyone's unique. So the best way to figure out what saddle works for you is educate yourself about the different shapes of saddles, understand how they're applying pressure to you when you sit on them, and then decide what works and what doesn't, and then try several saddles back to back. Also see my podcast on how to buy a shoe, a cycling shoe, same concept. The more back-to-back trials you can do, the better able you are to refine this process. Some fitters use pressure mapping to do this. I'll explain why I think that's quasi useful tool, but I don't have one in my fitch lab because I don't, I don't feel it really gains me anything, especially for the price. Some additional thoughts on saddle construction. We also have to think about the nose shape in particular, with a cutout saddle or not, either way, we want to look at the shape of the nose. Generally speaking, noses can be quite flat or a bit more rounded, and the cutout can either go all the way up to the nose or not. For some reason, it's quite common for seat companies to not continue the cutout all the way to the nose in some models. A good contrast in this is look at the specialized Roman or phenom and compare it to an SMP. An SMP saddle, the cutout goes all the way up to the nose. In a Roman or Phenom, it does not. The cutout is more centralized. Just using these as examples. There's no good saddle or bad saddle. The only good saddle is the one that works really well for you. And the only bad saddle is the one that is a Phillips head screwdriver. So I'm going to use a lot of brands as specific references in this podcast. And my objective is not to demonize or glorify or vilify or dogmatize any brand. I will just talk about brands somewhat neutrally, agnostically, because again, it really makes no difference to me what saddle you end up on. Full disclaimer: I own a bike studio. I am an SMP dealer. I'm also a dealer for some other saddles. I sell SQ Labs dash saddles. Have I have a few specialized saddles in there? I've got uh, not so many Physiques, but a couple. Most of the time, I use those as reference for what not to buy. To be honest, and I don't know what else at the moment. Anyway, I've got a pretty good pile, but I sell a lot of SMPs. I'll tell you that. Okay. The other one to think about is construction in terms of basic, what is the basic construction of a saddle and the padding and the amount of padding and the type of padding. So there's a base shape to a saddle and then there's padding on top of that base. Padding can either be thick or thin, and it can be firm and very dense, or it can be soft and squishy. As a general rule, the softer and squishier the padding is, the more chafing and bouncing it is going to allow and encourage. And in my opinion, one of the baseline goals of any bike fit is to have the most stable pelvis possible. So, generally speaking, I shy people away from padded saddles. If you're having big pressure points, I encourage you to find other options besides adding padding. What is padding? Padding is a gasket designed to make two objects that aren't really the right shape fit together. It's a void space filler. It's a one size fits all solution. And you're not one size fits all rider. You're a rider who spends probably thousands of dollars on your bike and you've got footbeds and you're dialing in your shoes and you're picking your handlebar size. So why would you pick a one size fits all saddle? Find the saddle that works for you stepping off soapbox width. I get lots of questions about width and the correlation between width and sit bone measurements. Width is a rough approximator. In Steve's estimate, it's like a 60 to 70% indicator of what width saddle you're going to end up being on. But from my perspective, it's not really a useful metric to take because you can come in and tell me my sit bones width said it was this amount, 148 or whatever. The bottom line is I'm still going to put you on a bunch of different saddles and coach you through what you feel and ask you to report to me what your sensations are. And when we do that, the result is normally that you can tell me very clearly what works and what doesn't. The key is I have to coach you through what to tell me. Sometimes people get on a saddle and they can't really tell what they're feeling. This is confounded by the fact that they're wearing a chamois. So two secrets. One, anytime you're testing a saddle, go towards the less padded model, a bonier side of things why that helps you figure out if the shape works better for you right away Two, use a thinner chamois consider testing saddles with no chamois not riding for three hours with it but just to test it for a few minutes that gives you a lot better feedback a lot more quickly you don't have to i'm not saying you have to ride with no chamois i am saying that if you rely heavily on chamois cream something needs to be worked on either your mobility your saddle position your bike fit overall your function as an athlete or your saddle choice or all of footbeds, saddle height, setback and angle, any of these things, it's a bit of a wormhole. But the fact is, if you are relying heavily on chamois cream, like you can't ride your bike without a ton of chamois cream, something's not right. I will also just pause to say that if you're using a petroleum-based chamois cream, that I have a big problem with this. Like my general philosophy, in case you didn't know, is such that if you wouldn't put it in your mouth, don't put it on your skin. When you get into a chlorinated bath of water, you absorb about 60% of the chlorine through your, your skin. Not 100% of the concentration, but 60% of that concentration over a long enough timeline. That's a lot of chlorine. Your skin is porous. It absorbs things. So putting Vaseline or bag balm or nasty chemicals on your chamois is something I do not agree with. I rarely, if ever use chamois cream myself. The big exception to that was during six day racing, when you're racing three hours a night on the track at a million miles an hour and 120 RPM, you pretty much have to deal with a little bit of chamois cream. Even then I was very selective about what I put on my balls. Just let me know. If you wouldn't put in your mouth, don't put it on your skin. This applies to all soaps, all cosmetics, perfumes. Don't get me started. You want more info? Go listen to Scott Story's podcast. So that's my speech on width. I'll just close it out to say that when you come in and say, I'm a 142, mm. okay, here's my experience. A lot of times when people go to a, a buttometer or an asometer reading and they get a given width, okay, and in particular, I'm beating up on specialized a little bit here. Their widths come in regular intervals. They have a 142 and a 155, and they have a 168. Those are the three major widths. They also used to have a 131, which most of the models they're phasing out, or perhaps all of them, which is a bummer because there are definitely people who need 131s. But Bell Curve sales model. Hashtag whatever. So let's say you come in and let's say you go to a dealer and you are fitted by someone and they take your budometer measurements and you are a 148. So you're pretty much right in the middle between a 155 and a 142. What they are instructed to do, at least from what I can tell from reverse engineering, I've never taken a BG fit course, is to put you on the smaller size. And From my money, what that's based on is a really simple logic. They want to have a successful sale and a happy customer. And most customers assume or associate, I should say, that a wide saddle means they have a fat ass, which means they're slow. That's the very simple way to look at it. If I'm on a 155 or 168, what's the biggest size you make? Oh, 168. Wait, you're telling me that I'm on a 168? That's equivalent to telling me I'm a 38 pan. I'm only a 34. So it's, it's almost vanity sizing where they size you down. Now, what's the problem with that? The problem is that if we're thinking about supporting those ischium, those ischial tuberosities under load, think about putting them on a step. Now, do we want that step to be narrower than the width of the ischial tuberosities? Or do we want it to be equal to, or do we want it to be wider than well, if we put it wider than, then you imagine there might be some clearance issues between the hamstrings or the medial tendons and ligamentous tissue of the upper inner thigh, the, the area right where your grundle meets your thigh, right? We'll call that the crease. I think everybody knows what I'm talking about. So we might have some clearance issues if, the, if that step is too wide. If it's too narrow, The ischium are going to fall off to one side or the other. They're going to tend to rock down on each pedal stroke. And that leads to an unstable pelvis. When the pelvis is unstable under load, something else has to try to stabilize it. That puts more load on the muscles of the back and the shoulders, ultimately, and the core. And that is not desirable. Bicycles are amazingly efficient machines, especially when you set them upright and you go forever and you don't have to fatigue certain local muscle groups. So, I want the widest saddle I can get under you and have not have clearance problems. That's one of my kind of philosophies. Now, sometimes that the width is determined or dictated by hamstring clearance or medial tendinous clearance or ligamentous clearance, something along those lines. Something in there is really not quite clearing the side of that saddle. And then we have to go down a size. But I want the widest saddle I can get under there so I can have the most stable pelvis. So when we support the weight of the torso on the ischium, there can be some adaptation. So if you're used to a conventional model saddle, and by this, I mean a saddle that does not have a cutout and is pushing up into the perineum or soft tissue. Remember that analogy of our cucumber on cucumber. Those two cylindrical objects stacked on top of each other. If you're used to sitting that way and used to all the decreased blood flow and all the erectile dysfunction and numbness and tingling that goes along with it or all the other yucky stuff in your nether regions, your lady bits, depending. If that's your model and you go to a saddle that has a void in the middle, a cutout or a deep channel and replaces that with pressure on the sides, meaning on those two railroad tracks along the ischium, initially that can be quite uncomfortable if you're not used to it because you're bearing quite a bit of weight in a new area in my experience, there is a progressive curve of discomfort. And then a cliff of happiness, we'll call it how it goes is ride Number one is like, Hmm, I'm not sure. I like this. Ride Number two is like, Ooh, I feel some pressure there. My nerves are kind of complaining. I feel a little, it's not pokey. There's no sores. There's no tension. It's just like yucky pressure. Ride three is, Ooh, I really don't know if I like this. I'm thinking about taking the saddle off. If things work out really well, you take one day off there and you come back and then you ride two hours and then you get home and realize you never thought about your saddle. The nerves adapt to that pressure of the weight of the torso being born on the bony structure. And it's just nerve pressure. It's just the nerves figuring out this is going to be a load. I can adapt to this. There's no, I'm not talking about calluses or sores or chafing or any of those types of adaptations on the skin. This is a nerve pressure issue. And if that And that curve I found to be pretty common. So just to be aware, if you change from a saddle without a cutout to a saddle with a cutout, and you experience that, that's a pretty common curve of adaptation. If we're supporting the weight of the torso on that perineum, then you're probably constantly dealing with perineal pressure. And this is not trivial. I mean, the contact points of bike fit are everything, right? And the relationship between those distances. And so if your saddle is Think about this, if you're supporting your saddle, the weight of your torso on your your perineum, and you're sitting upright, well, it's distributed over a given surface area. As you rotate the pelvis forward and roll, remember, we're going into that triangular shape. The the perineum is confined on the left and right sides by the ischium, basically. So we're, we're, we're supporting the same amount of force or the same amount of weight on a smaller contact area. And when that happens, the pressure goes up. Now, usually when you go in the drops, you're pedaling harder. Not always. Sometimes on a descent, you're not pedaling harder, but sometimes when you're hammering, you're going harder. So that so what can be a confounding variable there is you may think, oh, it's not that bad because if you're doing intervals in the drops or you're on a group ride and you're only in the drops and you're thinking, yes, I've got smaller pressure, but it doesn't seem that bad. Well, part of that is offset by the fact that you're pushing down harder on the pedals. So your feet are effectively taking more of the weight. You're off weighting the weight of the torso from the saddle. So think there is a relationship there. It's like the old saying goes, the old world tour saying is riders are always complaining when the race is too slow, their ass hurts. When the race is too fast, their legs hurt. You have a two hour neutral and a promenade, your butt's going to hurt because you're not pushing down very hard in the saddle and you're just collapsed. You're just lazy on that saddle, right? Except not my listeners because they all have good posture. They're minding their axial extension. So when an athlete is on a saddle that is predominantly can only support the weight of the torso through a perineum and they roll their pelvis forward, sometimes there's a wrestling match happening there because you want to roll your pelvis forward. And many riders have the correct instinct that when they roll their pelvis forward or anteriorly rotate the pelvis, they have the increased ability to breathe diaphragmatically, protect the nervous system and in particular how it relates to the spinal cord and also activate more glute during pedaling, all of which are desirable. But if the saddle's really kicking you in the front side, right behind your lady bits or behind the testicles for a guy, and it's really uncomfortable, then there's a wrestling match there. And you're going to want to roll the pelvis back to protect that. Occasionally I have riders who come in who are chronically doing that And the angle of the sacrum is nearly vertical as they sit on the saddle. And they've even, in some extreme cases, they're barely reaching down to the bars and kind of holding on almost with their fingertips on the tops. When this happens, typically the saddle nose is up a little bit and the saddle is a really poor fit for the front side of their crotch. So we got to start trying saddles and seeing what we can do. I'm going to talk specifically about a few models of saddles and what they offer and what they don't. And hopefully the idea is that, again, I'm not here to demonize or glorify any particular saddle. What I'm here to do is describe them so that you can figure out what works for you or what doesn't based on your experience. And there are a lot of different crazy saddle models out there. Um, Bike seats have some really funky little wormholes to go down. One point of clarification. People get confused on the names of saddles all the time. They come in and they say, is that a Sella saddle? Sella means saddle in Italian and many saddles are Italian. So Sella SMP just means saddle SMP. Sella Italia means Italian saddle. It's equivalent to making an American seat company, calling an American saddle manufacturing company and calling it American bike seat. That's what Sella Italia means. So Sella isn't a brand of saddle. It's a descriptor that happens to be in many of the saddle brands. So that point's a bit confusing for people. I just want to clear that up. So Sella SMP, otherwise known as SMP, is the brand that I carry or a brand that I carry. And they are made in Italy. And I like to say there's good Italy, there's modern Italy, and then there's Italy that's trapped in 1942. And I'm sure you can think of some examples of both. I don't need to name names on this, but SMP is a very progressive saddle company. And they have some really nice lines. And I'm going to describe them briefly for everyone. What their method is, is fundamentally to have true trees of saddles. We've got an oak tree and a cedar tree. An aspen? No, that's many trees. Anyway, analogy crumbles. We've got two trees of saddles. One is called the forma line, and the other is called the composite line. And each of these trees have a base shape that is the same throughout the line, but as you go from one end to the other, it gets progressively more padded. So on the forma line, it is specifically. Forma, Dynamic, Dracon, Light 209. Don't ask me where they got the names. I have absolutely no idea. We'll just chalk it up to creativity. And as we go from the Forma, which is a base only with leather, a base with leather padding only, meaning a thin layer of leather really is an unpadded saddle. Then we have a Dynamic, which we would consider light padding, a Dracon, which is medium padding and a Light 209, which is considered thick padding. All of those have the same exact base shape and width. That's the Forma base. Each of those saddles is available with carbon or stainless steel rails. Both are bomber. The other line is the composite line. And the composite line is a little different in that it splits into two branches. One branch is the narrower branch and the other branch is the wider branch. The wider branch is six millimeters wider in overall width. And there are only two padding levels. There's the bony, leather only, and light padding on each branch. That's it. Whereas the top layer has four layers of padding. The the other tree has four levels of padding, we'll say. Confused? I hope not. The point being is that you can, when I test people on the SMP line, I can test them on the leather only saddle and all, it's very common for people who've never ridden that saddle to just sit on it and go, wow, this is really comfortable. And then they get off and I point out that there's no padding on it and they're shocked. And this is the illustration of why when you have a base that is the correct shape, you don't need a lot of padding. Most cycling chamois are 12 to 15 mils of th- thick of foam padding. You've already got 12 mils of padding on your butt. So I'm not saying everyone needs a forma or a composite saddle, which is a hard thermoplastic base, carbon infused base with leather only. I'm saying a lot of riders need less padding than what they're on because padding is a one size fits all choice. It is a, it's a gasket solution and it is less than optimal. So when we choose a saddle such that's got this design parameter. And I, I, the reason that I work with SMPs and I've had such good success with them is because I've never seen a saddle with those two characteristics engineered to such a degree as they are in these saddles. And that those characteristics are a really large cutout that runs the length of the saddle all the way up to the nose one and two, a very big curve when viewed from the side that matches the shape of the curved ischium. So you can see how the design of this saddle works. It cups the ischium and it's as though when we put that rocking chair on that harbored floor, really what we're doing with an SMP is we're curving the floor up to meet the chair. So we're taking away the one point of contact and we're distributing it over a much larger surface area. That's the magic of that saddle. The challenge of this saddle is that because it supports the bony ischium and there's, very, there's less room for error in how the rider sits on it, that means if it's put in the wrong place, the rider will be fighting it the whole time. When you put a saddle in the wrong place and you're on soft tissue, you're on the perineum, that's three or four centimeters of squishy stuff. So the rider just moves around and kind of makes it work. And maybe it feels some little bit wrong sometimes and not really sure the rest of the time. And every once in a while, it feels pretty good. That's a pretty common saddle experience, but it also is coupled with pressure and numbness and tingling and loss of of blood flow, which are all things we'd like to do away with. When a fitter uses a flat saddle, especially one with a domed shaped nose or that, that rainbow shaped nose when viewed from the front. And it's completely flat when viewed from the side. It's a bit of a dartboard for a fitter in the sense that they can throw a dart. And as long as they hit the board, the rider's going to work some things out on the road. Why? Because a flat saddle allows a rider to slide fore and aft quite a bit. The best example of this is the Arione, the physique Arione, which is a pancake flat saddle and it's extremely round when viewed from the front. And even in the posterior section, the tail section, it is somewhat sloped. So the ischium can fall from side to side. People come in on the Arione and they don't know where to sit on it because there's no landmark there. You can't feel the back very well, especially because they put that wing flex thing on the side. So even when you start to run into where the, the saddle gets wider, it flexes. And then you can ride all the way out on the nose. To me, this is the I'll say opposite of my philosophy on how to build a bike saddle. And I will tell you that for years to go back to my opening comment about redefining what your 10 is. I rode the physique Arion for eight years and I rode it at the Olympic games. I rode it at multiple world championships. So if you asked me what saddle I thought was best at that time, I would have answered you physique Arion. And I would have said it was an eight or nine out of 10, but I didn't know any better. And this is one of the most powerful lessons about saddles. Comfort is very relative. So until you redefine your scale, you may not know what you're missing. This is especially true in the world of bike saddles. So I'm not suggesting there is an ant broke don't fix it rule. If you have stable pelvis, you're highly functional on the bike. You've got no niggles, no recurring injuries, and you've got no saddle sores. And your junk works great. Your sexual performance is fine then I would suggest there's probably no reason to change. However, seeing what I've seen and knowing what I know, if you're riding on a traditional style saddle without a cutout, I think all of those things are unlikely. So check yourself before you riggedy, wreck yourself. An SMP by definition is the opposite of this dartboard philosophy. You have to hit the target on the center as a fitter because you're supporting the bones, not the soft tissue, not this big squishy... Cucumber, you're supporting the bony ischium and that means there's less room for air. So that, what that means is saddle height, saddle nose angle, and saddle offset from the bottom bracket all have to be precisely controlled. Otherwise you'll be fighting the saddle the whole time and it'll never really feel right. Also, I'll say that the SMP line of saddles, while extensive and has a lot of different options and is a really well-engineered saddle, if someone doesn't understand how the line works or doesn't understand where a rider might land on that line and how to coach them through the sensations they're having. And they don't know how to set up the saddle. It's easy to get really lost in there. So it's pretty common for me to have people come in and say, Oh yeah, I tried an SMP like four years ago. And I really liked it for about 15 minutes. And then I hated it. And what that tells me is it wasn't in the right place. It was a big improvement from what they were on. They got off their Concorde, their flight or whatever. And they went, wow, this is amazing. But it wasn't in the right place. They started fighting with it, but they couldn't tell the difference. They didn't know where to go from there. And so they just gave up and took it off. And there are some shops that demo SMPs, but perhaps don't have the expertise to set them up properly. So it's a bit nuanced. It requires more of the fitting and it requires more of the fitter to get the saddle in the right place. If the set shape is correct and we get it in the right place, frequently the outcome is that it disappears. I've got a very, very high success rate with my men with SMPs, not as high with women, but still quite high women, ladies, I'm sorry, but y'all are ice skating up a little more uphill and getting a bike seat that doesn't, doesn't make you unhappy in the nether regions and downstairs. It's just kind of the way it is, but we have lots of tools to offer and I'll unpack some of those too. So as an example of a saddle that has a similar cutout, but is pancake flat, we have the Sella Italia SLR superflow saddle. It's got a massive cutout that goes all the way to the nose but when you view it from the side, it is flat as a pancake. So again, we've got a nice cutout where we're going to a relieve perineal pressure, but we're going to let that rider slide fore and aft all they want. And let's just answer this right now. There are 101 Italian wives myths about rules of thumb, about bike fitting. And 98% of them are complete garbage, but there are like three or four that we hang on to. Among the complete garbage is You should slide forward to the front of the nose of the saddle when you're going hard, especially on the flats, or slide back in the saddle really far when you're pushing on the climbs. This is mostly a junk rule, in my opinion. Occasionally, I even have have riders who get this paradigm backwards somehow, and they slide forward on climbs, and this is even more of a disaster. Why, you ask? Bicycle setup and the mechanics of bike fit have come a long way in the last 10 to 20 years, but they're still way off the back relative to most other sports that focus on strength and conditioning and mechanics of human movement. Basic rules in the gym. If you're lunging or squatting and your knees come forward over the toes, generally speaking, this is acknowledged. Not even generally speaking it is known that this increases the shear on the patella and increases the tension of the anterior chain of muscles, otherwise known as the quadriceps, specifically the distal quads, which are the quads closest to your kneecap. And this is undesirable. So when you slide forward, because it can cause knee injury and a lot of shear on the patella will eventually cause problems there over a long enough timeline for everyone. When you slide forward on the saddle, you're doing the same thing. You're going into under extension because the saddle's close to horizontal, it doesn't when you slide forward, you're not traveling on a circle on the circumference relative to the bottom bracket, which would keep your distance from the center, the radius, the same. What you're doing is sliding forward on a horizontal, so you're reducing saddle's height. You're also coming forward relative to the bottom bracket, which, which increases recruitment of anterior chain and tends to down-regulate, we'll say recruitment of posterior chain. Cyclists are already challenged to recruit posterior chain. I've probably said this a bunch of times already. I'm sure I'll say it more. But as we slide our butt forward of the bottom bracket, we make our dead spot worse. We're now pedaling a tricycle. We're stomping with quads. All the glute goes out the window and so during your hardest moment of the race, you want to decrease the total number of muscle fibers you're recruiting, that's what I'm hearing. You want to decrease joint angle to give yourself less leverage on the pedals. Okay. I see what you're saying. Basically it's like cheating the last five reps of every squat. If we go in the gym and I want you to squat to parallel on every rep, but when it really counts on the days where we put on the heavy weight, I want you to only go to 80% of that range. Why would that be considered acceptable? I and mean, we can see the problem there. If you're training that way all the time, you get what you train. So if you're only training 80% of your range, you're going to get 80% of your strength in that you're going to get 80% of the range that's strong, but that's not the demands of your event. I would argue you want to train a larger range than what your event is. We're always seeking to make the athlete more robust than the demands needed for their event. Not, not barely matching or less than. Okay. So this is what a flat saddle offers is the opportunity for the rider to slide back and forth towards the nose or towards the tail. A curved saddle doesn't prevent this. A lot of people think it does. It discourages movement and it stabilizes the pelvis in those ranges, but it doesn't prevent it. You can still slide back. You can still slide forward. You can slide forward up onto the nose of an SMP, which has an aggressive curve towards the front end of the saddle, the advantage to that is as you slide forward, at least you're not going into under extension. Hence the answer to one of the questions I frequently get, can I use a curved saddle such as an SMP on my gravel bike, my cyclocross bike, or my mountain bike? Yes, you can. Why? Because as you slide forward on the nose, when you're going up that extremely steep grade and you have to come forward on the nose and put your nose down towards the stem and kiss the bars to prevent your front wheel from coming up and still maintain rear wheel traction, You'll actually find the SMP feels more powerful because you're not going into under extension. You're maintaining at least some of the leg extension when you're in that forward position. There are some other saddles that have a curvature to them, but have no cutout. An example of this is the Physique Aliante. It's got a pretty healthy curve when viewed from the side. If you take an Aliante and put it on a flat surface and then put a ruler on top, you'll see that curve pretty clearly. And when I'm referencing the curve, I'm referencing from the tie points. So we're doing exactly that. We're putting a ruler on top of the saddle. That's how we know how deep the curve is. And it's in the neighborhood of some SMP models, depending on which one you're talking about and how much paddling there is. That's good. But then we twist it towards the front and look down the nose and we see that the Alignante is extremely bulbous and cucumber shaped. So it's pushing straight up into that perineum. Ah, But wait, what about the versus line you ask? Which physique introduced a few years ago? I won't speculate into why they didn't just go to a cutout saddle and they went to a channel saddle. It's not a true cutout. It's a channel. And what I'll say is physique made things a bit worse here, to be honest, because they built up both sides with more padding. And the Aliante is already arguably too padded of a saddle, in my opinion. And they built up more padding on either side. And what that does is then the Ischium push down to that padding and crush it. And then your saddle height becomes a moving target as that saddle padding crushes. And I've seen this happen with world tour riders. It can be quite challenging. The story goes like this. The rider goes to training camp in December, January, February, pick your month. This is a new rider to the team. They get their new bike. We do a bike fitting. We agree on what their saddle angle, nose, angle, height and offset should be. We record these dimensions. The rider's happy. They select a versus saddle with a quite a bit of padding. So we're talking about a normal stacked level of padding and then additional padding on either side to build up the channel on either side. That's what's going on. So it's like a double padded saddle. It's like a double frosted Oreo basically. And then the rider takes the bike home and they train for six weeks. And during that six weeks, the padding on either side is smashed by that ischium every single day. And it gets lower and lower and lower. So they come back having ridden on a saddle that's slowly lowered Uh, a few millimeters at a time for six weeks until it's about, we'll say eight, maybe 12 millimeters lower. That's not trivial in the world of professional cycling or in any bicycle rider's universe. 12 mils is a lot of saddle height difference, but they didn't notice it because it happened gradually. Then the rider comes back, meets the team for their first race, and they get their race bike for the first time. The mechanic has done his job precisely. These guys have $2,000 $2,000 custom Euro made 2,000 Euro jigs made out of aluminum and steel that precisely measure and duplicate the position of one bike to the other. And they have all the dimensions recorded. So they, cause they're constantly building and tearing up bikes. They're constantly building up and tearing down bicycles, TT bikes, road bikes, spare bikes, Roubaix bikes, classic bikes, replacement bikes, grand tour bikes. And that means all the dimensions have to be matched exactly. So they, they came up with jigs that allow them to very efficiently duplicate things like saddle height, distance from the tip of the saddle to the center of the bars, the hoods, bar angle, etc. So the mechanic does his job and he puts the saddle exactly where it was six weeks ago at training camp. And the rider gets on the bike and rides for five minutes and goes, what the hell? This is totally wrong. My saddle's way too high because he's on a new saddle on his new racing bike and the padding is not packed down. And then the mechanic gets upset because he's done his job and the rider's going, no, this thing's way too high. You're going to give me 10 and ice. my back hurts. And so it goes. And they're both right because the mechanic did do his job and put the saddle where it was. And the rider is correct because the saddle is now too high because the saddle changed. So one of the complications of having too much padding is that your saddle height is a moving target. And when you go to have multiple bikes or when you, your saddle wears out and you go to replace a new one, then you, it's a guessing game. How far down do I put it to compensate for that smashed padding? We want less padding is ideal. Other saddles that I work with and see commonly for riders who don't do well on SMP, let's go there first. What riders don't do well on SMP because we're supporting the bony ischium riders with a, an osseous or structural leg length discrepancy, meaning one leg bone is longer than the other. That can be the lower leg bones or the upper leg bones. If that's the case, sometimes supporting the rider's weight on the ischium just doesn't work. Even if we shim them and do all the things that we do to help compensate for that leg length discrepancy, there's just tends to be too much pressure on one ischium relative to the other. Other times we have challenged with SMP is when I think there's maybe one or two riders I've had in my career who have a more pronounced ischial tuberosity on one side than the other. It's not that they have a leg length discrepancy, it's just that one tuberosity is just way pointier. And that can cause problems because they get a constant pressure point. And so we're supporting the ischium. And if there's too much pressure on one side, it just kind of relentlessly hammers them until they get sores and things. So that cannot work. The confounding variable there is that many, or I would say most riders come to me with a pelvic obliquity, which is when the two halves of the ischium are not in alignment with each other. One is rotated forward or to the anterior, and the other is rotated backwards to the posterior. The most common arrangement of that being right anterior or forward, left posterior or back. And this leads to a sensation of uneven sits bone pressure or ischial tuberosity pressure, ischial. Some people say ischial. I don't actually know what's more correct. Ischial, ischial. Probably depends on what continent you're on. We'll get Trevor in here in a minute and he'll say it some other way. He's always bashing himself for saying stuff, air quotes, wrong. I'm just gonna tell him that he's just Canadian and he says stuff his own unique way. So when we have that pressure differential from side to side, it can be an indicator that we have some pelvic shear happening or some hemispheric alignment differences between the left and right aspect of the pelvis. Hemisphere is kind of my own playful adjective to describe that. So that can be a confounding variable. That may just mean that you have pelvic shear issues that need to be dealt with and your pelvis needs to be square before you're going to be able to figure out which saddle works for you. That is a whole wormhole to go down and out itself. So seed planted, next topic, next podcast, future podcast. Uh, if you want to know a little bit more about that, see my my episode with Steve Hawk. He talks quite a bit about pelvic obliquity. So those are people who don't work well on S&Ps. The other recipe for people who don't work well on S&P tends to be the rider who has been riding for 20, 30, or 40 years. And they're they're just so ingrained that they have to move forward on the saddle, on the flats, and push back on the on the climbs, or even worse, vice versa, they can't get their head wrapped around it and it doesn't work for them and they give up. Sometimes I can coach them through that and let them have patience frequently. Um, sometimes not. I also describe in a little bit more detail, some of the aspects of SP bike saddle setup and some of the adaptation curves and challenges in an article that we will link to that's on my website. It's called the S&P Primer. Also, we'll make a link to Steve Hogg's excellent article all about S&Ps where he breaks down all the different models, the padding levels, talks about the two trees, and he also talks about they, they have some additional models that are called orf- he calls them orphans. He also talks about this thing called tumble home, and it took me a while to figure out what the hell he was talking about, but that's basically, he talks about it as the angle of the hull of a ship. So if you take that ship and flip it upside down, And you think about the angle of the hull, that angle is sort of what he's using to describe how steep the side of the saddle is. Some are kind of more rounded and dome shaped. Like for example, a Shimano pro stealth saddle is a very kind of wide shelfy flat saddle. It's got a pretty big cutout. It's very flat and it's sort of wide. And then it falls off kind of gradually towards the, towards the sides. That is a saddle I found some success with on riders who can't make SMP work. There's a small percentage of riders who can't get around the front side of the SMP kicking up. The key to that is to put the saddle as nose down as possible. Actually, this is a rule I use for all saddle fit. Generally speaking, we want to encourage more anterior rotation of the pelvis. That means tipping your pelvis forward what do I mean by that? We always have to define these anatomical terms because it's really easy to get off track and have the concept be backwards for people who don't have anatomical language in their database. That's fine. We just have to be clear about what we're talking about. So think about your pelvis like a bowl of soup. We have the belly button side and the lower back side. Anterior tilt or forward tilt is when you tip that bowl of soup forward so your belly button is lower, right? You're pouring soup at the front. You're pouring soup on your toes. That's anterior tilt that is the direction we want saddles to tilt generally speaking uh excuse me, that's the way we want pelvises to tilt generally speaking when you forward hinge at the hip, that is proper form is to hinge at the hip, not in the lumbar spine. If you keep your sacrum vertical, you do not when you bend forward to get to the bars you keep your sacrum vertical and you bend in the lumbar spine or the thoracic spine or anywhere besides the hip, I would argue you have some optimization to do there, which is a nice way to say you're doing it wrong. So I want the saddle as nose down as possible. Start stopping, of course, just short of the point when the rider is going to be either bracing themselves from sliding forward or chronically sliding out to the end of the nose and then having to do a big adjustment back, a big butt scooch back. I call that the typewriter and I'm dating myself with this analogy. Some people don't know what a typewriter is in this day and age, apparently, but basically it goes like this. You, you kind of work your way out to the front over hard pedaling out to the nose and then go and then back to, you have to do a giant reset. A lot of people, when I use this reference, they talk about the year Conador lost the tour in the final TT and he was kind of all over the saddle and a total train wreck. And even the commentator noticed that he was typewritering out to the nose and then having to do a scoot back. And that's very common in time trials. That's not an affliction that is unsolvable at all. It is a function of increased demand of riding in the time trial position functionally and saddle position has to be just right. You want to see another really awesome example of that? Check out some old videos of Tony Martin where he had the brilliant idea to put sandpaper on a saddle and glued it on there and then finished a time trial with a bloody taint as a result. It's a bit tragic and a good lesson. The goal is not to make a saddle and chamois combo that glues you in place. It's to have a saddle shape that supports the pelvis in a stable way. So we want the nose to be as nose down as possible. Generally speaking, stopping just short of the point where the rider loses stability the more curve there is when viewed from the side, the more you can be nose down. And to be clear, we're talking about measuring from the high points of the saddle. Just put the level across the highest points there are. Don't put it down on the nose. Stop doing that. Everyone wants to do that. Why do you want to do that? Put put the level on top of the whole saddle from the tail to the tip, from the tail and to the nose. That's your saddle level. And on an SMP We're talking between two and five degrees nose down, but more three and a half, four or five for most people with a racing type saddle to bar drop is common. Sometimes we can go six or seven. As long as the front half of the saddle is not at 0.1 or zero, we're okay. Because that means the front half of the saddle has some purchase. It will keep the rider from sliding forward. If the front half is down, then you've undone the whole point of the saddle and that model didn't work for you. If that's the only way you can tolerate it you got to find a different solution. And for women, especially, this is an issue because women tend to be more sensitive towards pressure in the front for obvious reasons, anatomical reasons. You don't want too much pressure in the front side of a woman's saddle, especially when they're trying to rotate their pelvis forward. So this is why a saddle like an SMP or an ISM or any split nose or void, uh, cutout saddle, will say may not work for women simply because they get too much lateral pressure on the vulva to be direct. And it's just painful for them to sit like that. This was the birth of the specialized mimic saddle. What the mimic does is they use pressure mapping to figure out that most women, some women in their test group were having problems with this lateral pressure. And they needed, the only way they could solve that problem in their eyes was to make a bigger surface area but make it a soft, squishy gel. So basically, the front half of a Roman saddle with Mimic, it's called. Mimic is a is a technology they can apply to any of their different saddle models. Is it's got this gel nose on the front side. And for some women, the mimic saddle works really well. It doesn't work well for all women. Um, I've had some good luck with SQ Labs saddles for women. It's got a very flat nose, so it distributes pressure well. It doesn't have a cutout, but it does have a channel. And it does have some scoop to the back. That's worked well for some of my ladies. Some women do just fine on SMP. In particular, the Nimber. Yes, it's actually called the Nimber. That's N-Y-M-B-E-R. Or at a pretty good healthy nose down angle, we're talking five and a half, six degrees. Or a Dracon can also be a win for some women who are struggling to find good saddle fit. That can also work. I've had a few women end up on pro saddles as well. The pro stealth. That's my universe of saddle experience right now. There, there are a few other saddles worth mentioning that are a bit out of the box. If you're struggling with all these, you've tried all these and they're just not working and you're sure you've had them at the right angle. Uh, then you might try some radical solutions. One of them is the infinity saddle. It's basically an unsaddle. Imagine if someone took a Sharpie and laid you ass up and traced a line around the edge of your pelvic floor without hitting any holes. That would kind of be like an infinity saddle. We'll put a link to this too. If you haven't heard of it, pretty radical design. It's, it basically just voids everything in the middle. And it's like a thin ring outline of a saddle. And this can work for some riders there, it has a small cult following. You got to figure out what works for you. There's no wrong answer. As long as it supports the pelvis properly and you can ride with a good weight balance test. I'll describe that briefly so people can know what I'm talking about. Here's your weight balance test. Put the bike in a trainer, make sure it's level. Ride at about healthy zone two power, like zone two plus, we'll call it between zone two and zone three. So pretty good pressure. Like Kind of pace you would do if you were annoyingly half-wheeling someone on a two-hour ride. Ride in the drops. Disclaimer, don't take yourself out. When you're ready, if you feel stable, take your hands off the drops and swing them back to straighten your elbows so your hands are by your hips. Can you keep riding like that without doing a faceplant into your own stem? I told you don't faceplant into your own stem. I told you that. If you can do that without a lot of scooching or straight up falling or excessive movement towards the nose of the saddle, that tells you one, that your saddle is a good platform to support the weight of the torso. And two, your saddle offset behind the bottom bracket is far enough. The further back you put the saddle behind the BB, the more likely it is you're going to be able to pass this test. But it also tells you a bit about saddle pressure and about the shape of the saddle and the nose angle. You could have the saddle in the right place, but if it was two nose down, you would still rock it off the end of this thing. So that's a weight balance test. What is that telling us? It's telling us that the majority of the weight of your torso is supported on the saddle, not in your hands when you're in the drops. That means you can reach forward and grab the drops comfortably and just lightly put pressure on the drops to stabilize the upper body and steer the bike. When you're set up like this, your bike will be amazingly efficient and you will go fast. Um, When you're not set up like this and your saddle's jammed all the way forward, you've got way too much weight on the arms and shoulders. And this will illustrate to you how much of the weight of the torso is being supported by your shoulders and your biceps and your triceps and how, hopefully that'll be obvious how inefficient that is. A a final option for those of you who are looking into radical saddle solutions, there is a custom company out of California. It's called Meld, M-E-L-D, I can't say that I have tried any of their saddles. I've had a couple of clients who've had experience with them and they've been good. Maybe someday I'll order one just to see what happens. But they are a last ditch solution for some riders who maybe can't find things that work. I think custom saddles is a great way to go. I'd like to see more, more companies um, working towards this direction because ultimately we are all unique and you have to find out what works for you There are also a lot of companies coming out with these 3D molded kind of honeycomb looking saddles. Fizik has a couple of these models specialized as well. And I haven't tried one of these yet. Full disclaimer, I will sit on them eventually and let you know what I think. But my take is that really what we're doing is we're just creating more fancier padding. And to me, that is a step in the wrong direction. To me, this is a step to make things more one size fits all and Take away more pressure points, not build a shape, a saddle that supports the ischium in the right way and allows for the best shape possible for your unique bony anatomy. That I think is the ultimate, the ultimate solution. I hope you found this all useful, or at least some of it useful in your journey to find saddle comfort. If you have specific questions, you can always hit me, info at Cyclinginalignment.com, Make the keyboard mudras. Have your little fingers do their thing and I'll hit you back. Full disclaimer, I am subject to email landslides at times, so I appreciate your patience. And also please understand that my time is not unlimited. Thank you. I will do my best to point you in the right direction if I can though. If my answers are abrupt, well, an abrupt answer is better than no answer. Aho, it is done, it is done, Is done. See you for the next episode. Attention, Space Monkeys, public service announcement. Really, technically, it's a disclaimer. You already know this, but I'm going to remind you that I'm not a lawyer and I'm not a doctor. So don't take anything on this podcast to constitute lawyerly or doctorly advice. I don't play either of those characters on the internet. Also, we talk about lots of things, and that means we have opinions. My guests' opinions are not necessarily reflective of the opinions of anyone who is employed by or works at Fast Talk Labs. Also, if you want to reach out and talk to me about things, feedback on the podcast, good, bad, or otherwise, you may do so at the following email address, info at Gratitude.